Hello, dear friends and colleagues. In this episode of CardioCast, we are covering ACC 2022. Me, Dr. Majid Chinikar, with my friend and colleague, Dr. Esan Halilipur, we are very pleased to be with you to wrapping up the new studies that they covered in this year. First of all, I'd like to go for the new guidelines for heart failure that is updated that this is very important. There is some difference in the nomenclature and also for the definition for the heart failure reduced EF less than 40% for the improved ejection fraction or heart failure IMPEF means the previous EF less than 40% and in follow-up improving more than 40. Heart failure mid-range mildly reduced ejection fraction between 41 to 49% and for FF more than 50%. The new addition for this heart failure is that for the classification stage A means the patient at risk for heart failure in this group of patient and also for that in stage B or means preclinical heart failure, the SGLT2 inhibitors in the diabetic patient is a class one for treatment. In addition, in a stage B, in the pre-heart failure groups, the ACE inhibitors, I mean all the family for the angiotensin system, and for the first line, ARNI uh, means sacobitril, and also after that for the ACE inhibitors, and if not tolerated with the ARVs, and also for the beta blocker, recommended as class one. For the stage C, means symptomatic heart failure, and a stage D, advanced heart failure, for all these two groups, ARNI, the class 1, beta blocker, MRA, and SGLT2 inhibitor, diuretics as needed, and hydrazine nitrate in African-American class 1. In this group of patients, Evobradine, class 2A, and digoxin, resiguat, PUFA, and potassium binders are class 2B. For the heart failure mid-range and preserved diuretics as needed, our class 1, SGLT inhibitor, our class 2A, and all other classes, I mean, for the uh, ACE inhibitors, ARNI and MRA and beta blocker, our class 2B. Some points that to be addressed here are treatment with the SGLT2 inhibitor. This is just for emphasis. It's not uh, indicated in the diabetic patient. It's regardless of the blood sugar in the heart failure reduced ejection fraction. And in normalizing patient, you have to use this group of treatment as class one. Also, the another issue in this group of patients is for the heart failure improved EF that's happening in group of cardiomyopathy. And it showed in a small randomized trial, thread heart failure that high rate of relapse occurs in dilated cardiomyopathy patients within six months of discontinuation of guideline-directed medical therapy. Therefore, it's recommended that guideline-directed medical therapy to be continued in patients with heart failure, improved EF, including those who are asymptomatic to prevent relapse of heart failure and LV dysfunction. Also, the next point and issue is thinking about the treatment as cost efficient. High value therapies means less than $60,000 per quality include ARNI, ACE, ARB beta blocker, MRA, and hydrazine isosorbyl dinitrate, ICD, and CRT. SGLT2 inhibitors 
and cardiac transplantation are of intermediate value. Tafamidis, the class 1 treatment for the amyloidosis, is a low value, it means 180 thousands per quali, while mechanical circulatory support and pulmonary pressure monitoring are of uncertain value. For the patient suspecting of amyloid heart disease, checking for monoclonal light chain, and if negative, going for the bone scintigraphy and confirming the presence of transtyretine amyloid, genetic testing is also recommended to differentiate between hereditary variant from wild type and tafamidis is recommended in select patients with wild type or variant transtyretine amyloid to reduce the cardiovascular mortality and morbidity as class 1a. We know that the signs and symptoms of heart failure can be non-specific. Therefore, Supporting evidence of increasing filling pressure, either invasive using hemodynamics or non-invasive using diastolic function and imaging and using natriuretic peptide are required for confirmation of diagnosis of heart failure when the ejection fraction is more than 40%. Timely referral of heart failure patient is highly recommended for advanced heart failure patient and thinking about the new categories as at-risk and pre-heart failure is also something need to be mentioned again. After this coverage of the heart failure, I'd like to go very, very rapidly for some important studies. The first one is the calcium score. In more than 67,000 primary prevention patients from the CAC consortium using multivariate risk regression and C statistics, they showed that there is a, a stepwise higher risk in sudden cardiac death for CAC in groups between 100 to 399 and also for 400 to 999 and also for more than 1000 calcium score. A higher burden of coronary artery calcium CAC may be associated with a higher risk of sudden cardiac death regardless of the presence of risk factors for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. The next one is the edit CMD. Is diltiazem effective in reducing coronary vasomotor dysfunction? Coronary vasomotor dysfunction is a broad range of disease in patients with ANOCA, angina, in non-obstructive coronary artery disease. In the randomized placebo controlled trial, edit CMD evaluated the effect of diltiazem on coronary vasomotor dysfunction as assessed by repeated coronary function testing CFT and angina and quality of life. Total of 126 patients included and underwent for the first CFT and after six months, 73 patients, 38 in the diltiazem group and 35 in placebo group underwent the second CFT measuring the CFR and IMR and using the cutoff of less than 2 CFR and more than 25 IMR as impaired. Improvement of CFT did not differ between groups. However, more patients in diltiazem treatment progressed from epicardial spasm to microvascular spasm or no spasm. No significant differences were observed between the diltiazem and placebo group in microvascular dysfunction in questionnaire for the quality of life. In this first performed RCT in patients with ANOCA, they showed that the six weeks therapy with diltiazem did not substantially improve coronary vasomotor dysfunction. 
symptoms of quality of life. But it showed that when we want to go for new studies in this field, this study obliged the researcher to go for such a definite and precise measurement of the coronary vascular function. The next article and a study that need to be mentioned here is about the complete revascularization and its effect on reducing angina. In previous study in the complete trial reported in 2019, it was showed that the complete revascularization reduced cardiovascular death or neomyocardial infarction in patients with STMI or multi-vessel CAD, finding that led to a class 1A recommendation for complete revascularization in the guideline 2021st for ACC, AHA, STS, and SKY. In this new complete revascularization trials, Shamir Mehta reviewed the administered Seattle Angina questionnaire baseline, six months, and final visit at a median of three years. At the end of this study, more patients were angina-free in complete revascularization cohort compared with that culprit only PCI. The benefit of complete revascularization was observed entirely in patients with non-complete lesion stenosis, severity more than 80%. And the researchers stated that this difference was notable because of the crossover to non-complete lesion PCI in the culprit lesion only court after ungenerated ischemic events occurred in this group. Complete revascularization improves overall patient reported health status in addition to its established benefit in reducing major cardiovascular events. Next study, POIS-3. We learned a lot from McMaster University during recent years about the non-cardiac surgery and risk stratification and treatment about prevention the risks. In this new chapter, they did an excellent job that measured the effect of transamic acid and its effect on reducing severe bleeding risk in patients undergoing non-cardiac surgery. The goal of this trial was to compare the effects of intraoperative transamic acid versus placebo on bleeding and also they checked another important issue, preoperative hypotension avoiding strategy versus hypertension avoiding strategy and their effects on major adverse complications. Total number of randomized 9,500 patients. Duration of follow-up was 30 days. The result of this story indicated that routine administration of transamic acid during non-cardiac surgery resulted in less bleeding compared with placebo, but it did not meet the criteria for non-inferiority for primary cardiovascular safety endpoints. Also for the hypotension and hypertension avoidance group, means the group that their discontinued ARBs and ACE inhibitors before their surgery compared to that group that they continued while they are keeping with their expert anesthesiologist the mean arterial pressure more than 16 millimeter mercury they show that there is no difference between two groups a strategy for primary endpoint that means the composite of death from vascular disease and non-fatal heart injury, a stroke, or cardiac arrest at 30 days after surgery. Marie Marcucci 
say that we concluded that most like reason we found no difference between the two strategies was that they did not have a substantial differential impact on blood pressure or heart rate during the preoperative period. And he also added our study answered two important questions that confront anesthesiologists, cardiologists, and internists every day worldwide. It taught us that ensuring patients' mean arterial pressure remains above 60 throughout the surgery is safe and that targeting a higher mean arterial pressure does not make a difference. Also, whether or not patients continue to take all of their chronic blood pressure medication throughout the preoperative period did not make a real difference to their blood pressure and heart rate and to major cardiovascular events. Next study is about the HCM. There are three studies need to be mentioned. Valoricium, Mevacantin, targeted inhibitor of cardiac myosin that decreases the number of myosin-acting cross bridges. Is there any place to decreasing the need for septal reduction therapy, SRT, among symptomatic patients or not? 112 patients for 16 weeks under this study and the primary endpoint, a decision to proceed with SRT or guideline eligible at week 16 for Mevacanton versus placebo. That was really significant. For the Mevacanton, something 18% and for the placebo, something like 77%. And all other endpoints also meet. The interpretation is that the Mevacanton improves symptoms and significantly reduces the eligibility for need to do SRT among symptomatic patients. But is this effect is durable or not, we have to be vigilant about the long-term result. The next study in this group of patients, HCM, is the Explorer, the Mevacanton for treatment of symptomatic obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, randomized double-blind trial in 251 patients for 30 weeks, also that was significant and superior to placebo. MEVA LTE is an ongoing long-term for five years, the effect of mevacantin in this group of patients that's also promising in the interim analysis. The next study is CHAP. Is there any room for treating the mild chronic hypertension? And is it better than treatment for the patient that in stage three or severe hypertension or not? The benefits of safety and treatment of mild chronic hypertension less than 140 on 90 during pregnancy in chronic hypertensive group. And in this open-label multicenter randomized trial, the pregnant women with mild chronic hypertension at the gestational of age less than 23rd weeks receiving the antihypertensive treatment and that showed that the strategy of treating patient was associated with better pregnancy outcomes than treatment severe hypertension with no increase in SGA. Next is the effects of PCSK9 antibody alirucumab on coronary atherosclerosis in patients with acute myocardial infarction, PACMAN-MI. PACMAN-MI is a trial showed that compared to placebo administration of alirucumab 150 mg biweekly within 24 hours after PCR for acute MI patient results in greater reduction in plug burden and plug recreation at 52 weeks in the non-culprit lesion. This is IVUS guided, very nice study, screening 1700 and enrolled 300 patients follow up for one year 
and the primary endpoint was the mean percent atheromal volume from baseline that they reached a significant p-value. The next study is escort. So flozin is a combination of SGLT1 and SGLT2 inhibitor. SGLT1 is present in our gut. It is responsible for transportation and absorption of glucose and galactose in the GI tract. Because of this, more than 10,000 patients enrolled in this trial for the diabetic patient and CKD with the placebo controlled and the primary endpoint was cardiovascular death hospitalization for heart failure and urgent heart failure admission and that showed that 26% reduction in risk happened in the treatment group even in three months. That was very, very significant and very promising. The next study that needs to be mentioned here is the residual inflammatory risk and residual cholesterol risk among the statin-treated atherosclerotic patient with and without chronic kidney disease. This is a secondary analysis of Cantus that Professor Ritker with colleague that the investigator of the Cantus did this very nice job. We know that hyperlipidemia and inflammation jointly contribute to atherosclerosis disease and both have proven to be effective targets for pharmacological and non-pharmacological interventions. Yet the relative contribution of each of these in various patient groups, such as those with impaired kidney function, a group of very high risk of atherosclerotic events and substantial unmet clinical need. So because of this, the Cantus study that Kanaki Nova, human monoclonal antibody against neutralizing interleukin 1b showed that the maze in the treatment group was significantly reduced and that showed the role of the inflammation in this group of patients. In this analysis, they showed that in the group of patients with the CKD among atherosclerotic patients that they are treated with estatin therapy, residual inflammatory risk plays a substantial role in determining the risk of recurrent cardiovascular events. These data have implication for risk stratification of individuals with chronic kidney disease and for development of new agents that target inflammatory process in this high-risk group. The next study is NACME, Trends in Clinical Characteristics Managing Strategies and Outcome of STMI Patients with COVID-19. We know that COVID have direct and indirect effects on STMI patients and we learn a lot during this pandemic. The comparison group are the 2020 patient compared with 2021st and conclusion was that in hospital mortality decrease in 2021st more than 25%. The possible mediators may be the better risk profile of patient, less cardiogenic start and less pulmonary involvement. All the vaccinated patients were less likely to develop respiratory complications and none of them expire. But in contrast, the mortality remains high, 22% for the unvaccinated patients. And uh, this is the brief wrap-up, I guess, for the most important studies that we reviewed in this 2022 edition of ACC. I hope you enjoy this episode. And this be a very useful coverage for you, but I highly recommend you to go to our website and get a chance for reviewing the slides and comprehensive and details about these studies. Have a nice time ahead and be with you very, very soon. Thank you 
for your listening. Thank you.